This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Truscott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak, and this is episode 202 with Linda Olson. I am so excited for you to hear this episode. I know I always say this, but I feel very strongly about this episode in particular. I'm going to read you the back of the book so you know more about Linda's story. We're going to be discussing her memoir that came out last month, Gone, a memoir of love, body, and taking back my life. Linda Olson and her husband, Dave Hodgins, were young doctors whose story had all the makings of a fairy tale. Then, during a vacation in Germany, A train hit their van in an accident that shattered their lives, and Linda's body. When Linda saw Dave for the first time after losing her right arm and both her legs, she told him she would understand if he left. His response? I didn't marry your arms or your legs. If you can do it, I can do it. To protect their loved ones, Linda and Dave decided to hide the truth about what really happened on those train tracks. As a triple amputee, Linda learned to walk with prosthetics, change diapers, and insert IVs with one hand. She finished her residency while pregnant and living on her own, and she and Dave went on to pursue their dream careers, raise two children, and travel the world. In Gone, Linda asked readers to find not only courage, but also laughter in the unexpected challenges we all face. The day of the accident, no one envied her and Dave. Today, many do. I will stand in agreement with that one. I'm someone that really envies the wisdom and the perseverance that someone like Linda has. I'm excited for you to listen to this episode and understand why you might envy Linda too. As always, thank you for choosing to spend your hour with us. So I would love for you to introduce yourself to my audience. Thank you so much for inviting me. My name is Linda Olson. I have lots of ways of describing myself. I'm a retired radiologist, but right now the biggest part of my life is I'm a new author and I have a book coming out this fall. title of it is called Gone, a memoir of love, body, and taking back my life. Mm -hmm. So in my current part of my life, I'm an author. I've done lots of other things in my life, which we can go into. We will. I love that your husband always called you Olsi. Does he still call you that? Oh, yes. When we got married, we were medical student classmates. Well, let me back up. We were not in medical school when we got married, but we were classmates. And when we got married, his mom had been a civil servant worker, and he had grown up in the era of women's lib. And he felt strongly that women should keep their own name. So I originally hyphenated it, Olson-Hodgins. And then when I lost my arm, it was just too much to write. So I had always kept it professionally. I'd always been Dr. Olson. 
So he always called me Olsi as a term of endearment. So from the day we met in medical school, I've always been Olsi. So that's how endearing. And I was like, I've never heard that. I mean, growing up in high school, we would call the guys by their last name. But to call a woman and to use her last, I mean, I don't think I could use mine. Trust God. I don't think you could make that cute. But yours is so cute. I love it. You know, that's an interesting observation because in medical school, there were only seven females in our class. And maybe that is a reflection on the fact that it was a bunch of guys. Mm-hmm. And it was maybe the, you know, the softening of using everybody's last name. Never thought of that. Mm. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. In terms of your relationships, your romantic relationships, who was he at the time when you first met him, when you first got involved with him? Was he the first love of your life or where was he kind of like on the timeline? No. um, By the time you get to medical school, you've been through high school, college. And I was, you know, several people into relationships. But by the time we'd been in school for two weeks, I could look around that amphitheater and look at all the guys in the class. And I thought that one is interesting. Both of us were dating other people seriously at the time, and both of us ended our relationships within weeks of starting medical school. Interestingly, we kept our relationship very quiet all the way through medical school, just because we didn't want to complicate things. So a lot of people didn't know we were dating until towards the end or after we were done. So, yeah. I had a friend that was dating, still is, but at the time she was dating someone that was working with her. And something that was really difficult was keeping it a secret and feeling like he wouldn't acknowledge her at work or like she would watch and be, you know, friendly with the other coworkers, but really kind of ice cold with her. Did you guys have any of that? Yes. Interestingly, when we were in our third year, when you go out on the rotations, so your clinical rotations, you're up on the hospital floors, the nurses love Dave. And I used to watch from afar and think, they don't know. I've got him. But, you know, he was just kind of open with everybody. He just was friendly to everybody. Yeah, he didn't recognize the fact that they were hitting on him. But we're both very private people. Um, We've been that way all our lives, and we still are to a great degree. So it was probably easier for me than it might have been for other people to kind of keep it quiet. Where does that privacy come from? I'm the least private person. Perhaps it's a way of keeping control. Maybe it's a way of staying in charge of things. When you keep things to yourself, other people don't know them. I don't know. I never thought of that question before, but it strikes me that that may be part of it because we are both controlling people to a large degree, which is a lot of why we were successful after we had our accident was we were intent on being in charge. Yes. I mean, I felt that when you guys, and I really want to understand it more, you guys made this path to each other that what had happened was you guys stalled out on the train tracks. I went over that path a few times and I was like, am I missing something? Were you guys talking about that you were rewriting history? What was the pact? This is kind of the end of the book. So oh, no, did I not? Is it because I think I have like 20 pages left. Okay, well, the pact comes out at the very end, and it was a very important part of our story, and in fact, came one of the major reasons I decided to write the book, because we had kept this pact for pretty much 35 years, and it was a real important part of why our lives turned out so well. I'm willing to tell it to you. I'm not going to do it. I'm like in shock, but... 
Okay. Within the first three or four days of having had the accident, we were in the hospital and I never lost consciousness. Yeah. The train was visible, the time it hit, and I was awake when everything came to a stop. So I always knew what had happened. I sat down the day where we sat in my bed and I said, you know, we need to deal with what was going on. We stalled on a railroad track and couldn't get out of the car and got hit. He said, we want to have a family someday. Your dad was driving. Mm. We don't want people to really know that he stopped the car and turned off the engine to look at a map. So it was a conscious decision. It was a very inadvertent conscious decision. He would never have done that if that had ever been an obvious result. So we sat down that first few days and said, you know, we can't go around for the rest of our lives when we're going to be telling this story. I mean, when you lose three extremities, people are going to say, what happened to you? Well, we stalled on a railroad track. It's a lot easier to say that than to say, we were on vacation and my father-in-law did such and such and such and such. And we knew from day one that we were going to need a lot of family support. We didn't need people being torn apart by blame and guilt and the idea that something could have been done differently. We just wanted to put it behind us. That was it. And that's what we did. From day three, we said, the story is we stalled on a railroad track. I have told that story a thousand or 2000 times. We finally decided that it was probably an important part of our story because it's why a great deal of why we were successful because we took charge and didn't let blame or problems become overwhelming. That's behind us. We're done. We're going to move forward. So that's been our whole life. As you move forward, you pick up and you say, I can't blame people. There's no what ifs. There's no going back. Done. I knew that there's something off, but I couldn't figure out. Okay. So were the men actually out of the car then? Was that a true part of the story? Yes. When we stopped, within a few seconds, we could see this train coming at us. So I yelled, as you can see in the first part of the book. We tried to get out. They got out easily of the front. And the women, we were in the middle seat. I couldn't get the door open. And I was sitting next to the door. It was a VW van. And you had to lift up or do something funny to the handle from the inside. And so I rolled over into the front seat and almost got out safely. But I tripped as I got out and I fell. So they were out. Dave saw me as he was running away from the train saw me fall, came back and grabbed me, had me in his arms just as the train hit, and it blew us apart. I got trapped underneath the van, and he got thrown back along the train track. He actually got knocked out and broke his ankle, and I got pinned under it and lost my extremities. But I stayed awake. My glasses were still on my face when everything came to a stop. I was wide awake. It was like being in a movie. (laughs) Wow. And the thing that's also wild about this story is that the two other women in the car were completely fine. Exactly. So obviously you don't go back in your mind either. No, you just can't do that. The what ifs would just kill you. You can't be living a life of what if. You have to look forward and say, I'm going to take charge of this. This is me. We're going to have a good life. So you guys made this decision, but I remember, if I remember correctly, your husband's father was very quiet when he was in the hospital. Now, was he racked with guilt? Yes. We all knew what happened. And it was not the 
time would have done no good for us to sit down and start talking about it every time. So seeing him torn like that, the first time I saw him, I just thought, I've got to do something to make him feel better. I can't go around the rest of my life looking at him being a forlorn. He's a very outgoing, happy, friendly, charming person. He was in the Navy, very much of a people person. My job is to make people feel good. And it gave me something to do when I couldn't do anything else. I mean, you're lying in bed and you don't have any extremities left except your hand, which you're going to have to learn to use because you were right-handed. But it made me feel so much better when I could see people smile or I could get them to laugh and I could make fun of things. It just it gave me a mission very early on that my job was to make people feel good. Mm. And it seemed like you were always someone that was lively, but in charge. Yeah. And then, yeah, I love the, the scene of you going into physical therapy and getting the guys to laugh. I felt like, my God, if it was right now, you'd have to be so careful that you would have, you know, offended or been too sexual or something. I was like, I loved that this happened back then so you could do whatever you wanted. You know, I agree. Back then, we were not as politically correct. Right. But I happened to still believe that I could do that because as a disabled person, I have to make fun of myself. I have to be able to make you laugh or make myself laugh. And if that means I'm going to wiggle my boobs or I'm going to hug you with one arm or I'm going to do something that makes you comfortable with my disability. And instead of making it be a sexual innuendo, I've chosen to say, most people when they see me the first time are uncomfortable. They don't know if they should look at me. They don't know if they should say hi. They don't know if they should ask what happened. I look them in the face and I say, hi, I did that from day one. I did that when I was in the hospital in San Diego at the Navy. Because if I didn't initiate the encounter, they would go on past and they would never learn how to interact with me or I'd be left behind. So really a big part of my interaction was to get people to react to me. Mm. I'm such a believer in this in terms of just for anyone in life, and especially I was like brought it back to dating, that people need to initiate an experience. And I do think that you can't go waiting on everyone else all of your life to approach you. You just get passed by. So, I mean, you're such an example. It's kind of one of those, like, if you can do it, people really need to hear this. That's our motto. If I can do it, you can do it. Or if we can do it, you can do it. That's how our family was raised. And in fact, going back to not confront, but approach people. When my children were young and they would have friends over or I'm going to school to pick them up, you know, children look at you and turn around and their parents grab their arm and they pull them away. And I would stop and I'd say, wait, would you like to see what happened? Or do you want to know what happened? I never, ever, once that encounter was over, had a parent say, oh, I wish you hadn't done that. I would stop and I'd say, I was in an accident. I lost my arm. Would you like to see? And I would pull my sleeve up and show them the top of my shoulder, which is where my amputation is. These kids would just stand there with their mouth open and they would say, can I touch it? Does it hurt? And we'd have a, you know, maybe two minute conversation. And I thought they need to understand that people in a wheelchair, or I was often walking because I walked with my prosthetic legs, that were just like you and it doesn't hurt and I can do everything with one hand. So I had a little spiel of, you can touch it, it doesn't hurt. I can do everything with my one hand. You could try that too. Mm. And parents would walk away and say, thank you. You know, so it's, again, there's so many things as a disabled person that you can do if you feel like interacting with people. And I've had a good time doing it. 
wildly enough to me, the last person I interviewed was a past Olympian that is now paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And a big part of his story, and just so interesting that you brought it up, is kids looking. These kids are just so naturally curious. And what has been p- so painful for him is not watching the kids face, but watching the parents as they pull their children away as if he's contagious. And he talks about this one girl, the first day he was at a mall, watching all those kids and parents do that. And this one girl approached him with the mom. And he was just really commending the adult's bravery to come and ask a question, to allow the child to ask. Because he was saying that, you know, some people don't know how someone's going to react. Like, would you be offended if someone came and asked you things? And I just love how you guys are both similar in that regard. You'd rather call attention to something. And you know that it's because other people feel uncomfortable. What's fascinating about that is you're allowing it to be about others' discomfort and not your own. Right. That's a good way of putting it. It, um, You can't let people go through life not knowing. I mean, I put myself in that position. I'm a curious person. If I was walking by and saw you, you can't get rid of that thought. What happened to that person is a natural thought. It's my way of integrating all of us together. I'm a normal person. Until I was 29, I looked just like you. I acted just like you. This could be you. And I want them to know that if this ever happens to you, you're going to be okay. You can do this. It's kind of a prophylactic way of telling people that you can do this. It's funny when you talk about these little kids, and I'm sure the person you talked to before may have had stories like this, but when I would say I lost my arm, I had more than one child say, can we help you look for it? No. Terms that we use are sometimes so adult, and yet they see it in such a simplistic way. Well, if you lost your arm, I'm sure we could help you look for it. Right, it's so practical. Well, you hear about that when the question becomes, how do you tell a child that someone died? And I've heard that if you use like this mystical language, they don't understand. So you have to be like so exact about it. Like it's the arm is gone, but we can't find it. Yeah. Uh, So you say that this could happen to you. And that's a big thing, right? That like you were someone that was in a bikini when she was 29 years old, gardening. And you're saying like, you look like other people, like other people with your body, they wanted to be you too. But knowing that this could happen, you know, this could happen to me, what is a message that you feel like you could tell people that knowing that anything could happen to us, how should we appreciate or approach our lives now before something happens to us? Oh, that's a huge question. One of the reasons I think early on I was able to deal with this was I could think back to what I'd already done in my life. I had climbed Mount Whitney twice. I'd been down the Grand Canyon. I'd done a lot of things. And I had never not taken advantage of the opportunities that were given me. I was not stupid, but I mean, I just did a lot of things. And I could look back and say, look at all the things I've done. That's one thing I would tell people is never put off things till you can't do them. So, you know, don't go overboard and make it so that you're using all your money and you haven't saved anything, but do what is in front of you so that you'll never have to turn around and say what if or I wish. So live your life as full as you can. The rest of it, and this was one of the reasons I, early on, when I was in the hospital, both in Austria and at the Naval Hospital, I wanted so badly to have a picture of me that people could look at. 
I wanted probably, and I say in the book, in a tank top and my tight jeans or a bikini. I wanted people to see me the way they thought a normal person should be because I didn't feel like they could look at me and make that big jump. I felt like they needed some intermediary to know that I had looked like this before. And having had a lot of advantages in life. I mean, I had gone to medical school, I was a doctor, but nobody knew that. When I was in the hospital, they would just look at me and I was just a crip. I mean, I was a nobody. I was going to be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. And I thought, that's not the real me. The real me is going to be up and walking and talking or whatever. So I wanted them to make that jump and say, this is who she was. That's who I am. This could be me. Now let's deal with her like I would like to be dealt with. And it worked to a large degree, I think. I loved that scene, that that was something that you wanted. But it's not like you can walk around with that picture either. And what's just amazing is that, I mean, I think about all the years that I wasted thinking about my weight every other minute. So hard for people to imagine, but it really felt like every other minute of my life was this awareness about my weight. And I think about how much life I lost just being consumed and not being present to other people because I was thinking about these things. And yet the revelation too, and the sadness of putting yourself through that when like really who we are is these invisible qualities. You're saying that like a picture is for someone to connect the dot that you were a full person. Mm -hmm. But the reality is nothing's changed. Just like nothing changed, you know, you, you were conscious during the accident. You were aware of things. And that awareness isn't lost on you. No. And to take what you just said a little bit further, when you talk about your weight, my husband and I talk about this in the book, is he took me to the beach within several weeks after we got back. I was like, oh, my God. I just, I would not go to a beach. I'm like, you're on a beach. I just couldn't. I literally, that was a scene. But sorry, go on. I thought about that. It was terrible. I was not a happy camper. And we left the house. He had made me put my bikini on, carried me down to the beach. We have to go down the hill to get to the beach where we would go. He made me take my jacket off, my shorts off, and sit there in my bikini in a little beach chair. And I just couldn't look up. I just thought, this is just terrible. That was part of the pushing and pulling that he did for the first year all the time. It was kind of like, I want people to see us together. He said, maybe you can't feel good about how you feel, but maybe you can understand that it makes me happy. And I want other people to see that I don't care. He was the one that said, I don't care how you look. To me, you're sexy. You're attractive. I love you. I want people to see you. And it wasn't that he was putting me out there to be embarrassed. He just thought this was the only way he knew to make it look like he loved me. If you can take your wife to the beach with no arms and a leg and a bikini, you must really love her. <laughs> And it helped so much when I finally started getting used to the idea. And we went to the beach twice a week. We, our kids were raised at the beach. So we've been there thousands of times. But when I started to learn to walk, again, I looked very clunky. I have a toy soldier walk. I walked with a cane. I would put my cane out there and I'd take a step and it would clunk. It was noisy. And if you watched me walk, you'd say, what is wrong with her? But, you know, I just thought, I don't care. I'm going to work. I'm going to let people look at me. And I'm going to smile. And I don't think I did it intentionally at first. I think now that I think back on it, it was a wise move on my part. But it was just, I got to put my head down. I got to go to work. I've got to learn how to walk. I'm not going to worry about what other people think. And that's really hard for women. I was 29, 30 years old when this was going on. And I had 
brown curly hair. I have light skin. I had freckles. I grew up in Southern California. I was supposed to have a tan, straight, long, blonde hair. So I'm just like you when you talk about your weight. I always felt, oh, I don't look like I should. I'm not the California surfer girl. So when I became disabled, I just kind of said, screw it. I can be who I am now. And I don't give a rip because there's nothing I can do about this. So let's just get on. So in a way, it was one of those little silver linings of, I can't look like that anymore. I've got a really happy face. I'm always smiling. That's what people are going to have to see instead of the other parts that we make so important. Yeah. Uh, oh, my gosh. What's interesting about it is as the years have gone on, <laughs> because I worked in an environment in a hospital where I could walk with my cane and I used artificial legs. I never did get an arm, but I looked pretty normal except for my arm missing. I would walk in, I'd sit down and read films with the residents. And there are more than a handful of stories of people that I worked with for years who did not realize I was missing my legs. And the epitome of this was probably eight or nine years ago. My sister and her husband were windsurfing down in Baja. They're big time windsurfers. And there was Another man there who they struck a conversation with, he used to live in San Diego, and she says, oh, my sister lived in San Diego, and what did you do? Well, I was a radiologist. Oh, I did a radiology residency. And sure enough, he'd been one of my residents. My sister said, well, she's doing fine. She's a he had worked with me for four years. He had never, ever known that I didn't have legs. Wow. I was just dumbfounded, and then I thought, you know, I'm not. Once you sat down or talked to me, you didn't know that I didn't have legs. My arm didn't seem to be as obvious. So I think what I've learned over the years is we look at people from the shoulders up. That's how we interact with people. We may look at them to begin with, and we do that total body glance. Well, you know, how big are their boobs? Do they have skinny legs? How big is their butt? And once you go back to their face, it's your face that engages you or their speech or that's maybe where our soul is. I don't know. But that's, I think, where we react to people. And that's how we attract them. It's all in the eyes. Yeah. 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 Mm. Which we can still see with our masks on right now. <laughs> I mean, I've said it's never been a bigger time to, like, understand that it's all in the eyes. <laughs> that goes to show you, too, that you didn't make it about that. What's incredible is that your spirit, your energy, obviously, you weren't moping around. There wasn't any time for that. I know, but that seems like so you. I, I wonder. Obviously, you're a medical student. I wonder if that achievement-based mentality was so you. Because it was so important, it seemed, for you to get back to work. Very. Yes. Um, in fact, in my darkest moments, I would try to reconstruct who I am or who I'm going to be. Coming back to more than one thing. First of all, I had a good education. I had a potentially good job if I got off my butt and finished my residency. And I had a husband who had said, I didn't marry your arms and your legs. If you can do it, I can do it. And he didn't seem to be running away yet. And so I'm thinking, okay, I've got a husband who loves me and who's willing to work hard and help me. And I have a potentially good job and we've got family support. I'm the only person that can make this fail. I mean. If I don't take myself and make things work, then it's only going to be my fault. When you put it all back on yourself, it makes it a lot easier to kind of say, hmm, 
I guess I better do that. It's, I'm not waiting for somebody else to do it for me. Do I need help? Oh, yes, I need a lot of help. I can be very independent. In fact, that was another one of my very large goals early on was to be able to go back to living by myself if possible, which, as you know from the book, I did. But to be able to take care of myself as much as I could. And as I've gotten older, there are more things that I can do and there's more things I can't do. So it's kind of a... Ever evolving back and forth. Always a moving target, which is what kind of makes it interesting because things are never stable. So there's always a new challenge out there. And part of the challenge is figuring things out again. And then being able to turn around and pat yourself on the back. Oh, I figured that one out or that didn't work or I really am unable to do that now. I hate the word can't. So I try to say I'm unable to do that now. Either I need to do it a different way or get somebody to help me to do it. I think if I can go back, getting my independence back was another huge issue for me. As I started realizing that I was going to be able to walk, that I could go back and finish my residency, I had been living by myself in Los Angeles. And I had nine months left before my residency would be done. And I just thought if I could go back and live in that apartment again, finish my residency, I could come back and be whoever I need to be. Because in my mind, I know that I succeeded. I was able to live on my own. And I took my year leave of absence, medical leave of absence, and went back and finished. <laughs> I happened to be pregnant when I went back and finished. But that was part of the whole kind of sequence of events that let us know that we were going to have a normal life. It was normal, but it was going to be normal. And once we knew that, then we could sit down and say, okay, we've got our jobs. We've got a family. We had two children after the accident, three years apart. We had a daughter who's now 39 and a son who's now 36. And it was kind of like, okay, now that you've got a family, let's do the things that families do. And let's do all the things we wanted to do. And that's where I think our life became very full and very rich was taking our children camping out in the wilderness. One of my college roommates and her family go with us, took us out to Yellowstone the first time, put us in a canoe, went out camping in the wilderness, you know, no bathrooms, no nothing for four days. And we said, we can do this. My husband learned how to carry me on his back in a backpack. He could carry me up a trail for five miles with a lot of stops in between. We could camp by ourselves overnight, you know, the kind of life that we'd always wanted. But it was in slow steps and we took each one of these challenges as something that if it worked, fine. If it didn't, well, we had a good time trying. And more of them worked than did not work. Our children ended up with a life that was very full, which was important to us. Mm, especially because you said yourself that, you know, at 29, you could look back at all you had done. You know how your husband writes these musings in the book? One of the ones that he wrote about you know, early on was being in the hospital room and him knowing that it wasn't his presence that frightened you. It was the potential of his absence. I imagine that, you know, a lot of couples can fear that someone could leave them at any moment. So it's relatable. At what point, or did you ever let that go and just lean into the fact that he is present and I don't have to worry that he's going to leave? <laughs> it took me a long time. Uh, I think at the end of the first year, I went around the side of the house in my wheelchair and I just broke down and cried. And I thought, you know, 
this is not the way I want to live. I don't know how things are going to turn out. You know, I would have these dark periods that would last for, I'm not kidding, less than five minutes. You're so lucky. <laughs> I was lucky. They were short because once I didn't like that feeling. So once I felt that bad, I would say, okay, grab a hold of yourself. What are you going to do to get over this? And I remember telling Dave, you know, I don't know why you want to stick around. And he looked at me and he said, you may need my arms and my legs, but I need your emotional strength. Ugh. He said, and also, what would you do if it had been me? Wouldn't you stick around? And when he turned it in that respect and he said, if this had happened to me, wouldn't you stick around? I thought, well, of course. In our society, women always worry about being left behind. We all know it happens. And my parents were at an age where their friends were starting to get divorced and they were in their 50s. And I thought, you can never tell what's going to happen. So your question of, did I ever reach the point where I stopped worrying? I think that would be a stupid thing to do. I think it would be stupid to ever stop worrying about your spouse leaving you. Because if you stop worrying, then you're going to stop trying to please them or stop trying to make them happy. Mm. And that's part of the goal in life is to make each other happy. So if you don't have a little bit of worry, well, you're going to get complacent. And well, this is politically incorrect. <laughs> when we got married, which was a ceremony with nobody in the audience, um, <laughs> that's not in the book, but uh, he told me he said, there's one caveat to us being married. He said, if you get fat, I'll know that you don't care. Mm -hmm. I can't say that. Is that's not politically correct to say anymore, but dare you? His way of saying has often said, You know, I wasn't totally serious when I said that, but he said it was the only thing he could think of that would let me know that this is how I took care of myself for him or I cared about what he thought about me. So for him to have said that before we got married and then to have put up with me with no arms and no legs tells you he really didn't think that, but he really wanted us both to understand that if we were going to stay married, you don't stay married just by luck. Staying married is work. And it's not always fun, but it's always worth it in the long run. It's interesting. I don't know if the word is dichotomy between, you know, women worrying that men will always, could always leave them for a younger woman and someone that's more attractive. And you worrying about that, like, what would he be attracted to anymore with you? And then this other side where, you know, in the hospital and you guys had this moment and he was like, he could still be turned on. And he was like, you're going to have to do something about that later or something. And so he needed you to know that you were still attractive, like that he was still attracted to you. Also that he was not going to live a life without sex. I mean, that's just so amazing. He wasn't also sugarcoating that, that it was important for that to still be a part of his life. For you to feel good about yourself, because it was true. He was still attracted to you. And yet, he was still going to be a man. That's right. If you're going to stay married, that's part of being married. If it is a possibility, and I recognize that there are probably circumstances where maybe it's not possible, but if it's possible and it's just a matter of getting through it your head that you don't look the same or whatever, then it's still a significant part of your marriage. It should be. So it was something in your mind that you did have to overcome. Oh, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, we've been married now for 42, 43 years this year, something like that. I still think about it. I mean, I still think, how does he see this as sexy and attractive? 
but I can't let it be a very long thought. I mean, I can think it and I can say it's still there, but I can't be hung up on it. Why do we always hear women saying this though about themselves? Don't guys like end up aging and like, are all women just looking at their husbands and thinking, oh, they still look great. Isn't there moments where you're kind of like, he doesn't look the same either. (laughs) I think there are. And I mean, that wouldn't be realistic. And you know, when you are going someplace and you're traveling and you look at somebody and go, isn't that a great looking guy? Or that guy looks hot. And you know, it's okay for him to turn around and look, or he says the same thing. So I I think that's part of a healthy relationship. Your eyes are open. I mean, your eyes are connected to whatever is inside of you. And it doesn't mean that you can't look. Right. <laughs> about it, but you can look. <laughs> I'm such a man fan. I just, people say like men are like my alcohol. Like I come alive. I've no inhibitions with them. So it's like, I'm always appreciating men, but I have tunnel vision, you know? So I couldn't imagine being with someone that would ask me to turn that off. Like you said, like not to have your eyes wide open, but knowing that part of the commitment is that you're choosing someone, but that doesn't mean you're going to turn away from looking and appreciating others. Because you trust. When we finished medical school, I went up to Los Angeles to do my residency. He stayed in San Diego. And that was the initial part of our marriage was trust because we were away during the week and we'd get together on the weekends if we weren't on call. And if you can't trust the other person, then you're going to have a very different relationship. And it takes a while to build that trust and to keep it. But look at other people, as long as you just don't do anything about it. (laughs) So have you heard trust come up in different ways for your daughter and your son in their own romantic lives? (laughs) Uh, That's a question I should have to think about for a minute. I'll rephrase it just a little bit because this I have a better grasp on. Our children have told us as they grew into adulthood that our relationship, their mom and dad's relationship, made it very difficult for them to find people that matched what they had grown up with. As mom and dad, we weren't pains in the neck some of the time, but when they saw our relationship, they thought that dad should always be bringing home or husband should always bring home flowers every week from the grocery store and help do stuff around the house. And um, so when they started dating people, they went through a lot of different relationships. They didn't seem to see what they had seen with mom and dad. And so I think to this day, they will tell you that it's been a tough act for them to follow. And my daughter has a, a daughter. She's separated from her husband now. And my son just got married last year. So we're in different phases of their love lives and romanticism and things like that. But they've often told us that we set a very high standard inadvertently for them and they keep looking for it. Mm, Isn't that nice to be a good example? We're not good examples in everything. There are things that we were not such good examples in, but that's okay. Commitment. I mean, it's unreal. I mean, it's just, it's so much more rare these days. When my son got married last October, he lived in Hawaii. He had a very beautiful wedding, and it was at the very end of his speech to his wife. The very last sentence he said was, I promise I will never leave you. And of all the things he said in that commitment was, I will never leave you. And I thought that's because that's what he saw his dad. Uh. This is is him speaking to everybody out there that this is what my dad showed me. This is what you do. You never leave her. Uh. 
what about your husband like with the children oh my god just like how sweet he was about it like that was just something he wanted so badly that he prioritized like that he knew that he was with kids and he taught oh my god he says like one of the best lines just about i forget what it was just the joy that you gave him that he was the one that wanted children i was very ambivalent about kids and as i say in the book Within the first week, I was determined to have a hysterectomy. I just thought it would just be here. And when I said that to him, he just about lost. He says, you aren't even talking to me about this. You know, this is our way of having kids. And from that first week on, and that helped us when we made that pact, was someday we want to have a family. And it's going to take help to have a family. We're going to need our parents and brothers and sisters and people to help support us. And it was just the way we wanted to do things. When you dream... How do you see yourself? I would say that for the first 20 years, I always dreamt able body. It was very strange. And especially in the first three or four months while I was still in the hospital, when I was exhausted and I'd go to sleep, it was like a respite because I knew that when I went to sleep, I would dream, I'd be running, I'd be bike riding, I'd be swimming, I'd be doing whatever. And I always thought that when I woke up, that everything would be normal again. So it was difficult at first because when I would wake up, there was this abrupt jolt. I'd look down and my legs were still gone and my arm was still gone. And I'd have to sit there for a while and say, they aren't going to come back. And again, that may be one of the reasons that I was able to move on as quickly as I did was because it was so clear cut. I mean, you look down and there's no legs there and there's no arm there. You can't fantasize very long. You can wish and you can say, what if, but tomorrow morning they're still gone. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of hiking and I did a lot of camping and I did a lot of swimming with my legs and arms for years. And today I still sometimes dream able-bodied, but more often I'm not able-bodied. But I'm easily 20 years, easily 20 years. It's a very interesting thing. As an amputee, uh, one of the first revelations was within a couple days, I would sit there and on the bed and it felt like my legs were still there. And if I was sitting with the back of the bed up, it was as if my knees were bent, my feet and lower legs were going through the bed down towards the floor. It's like I was sitting in a chair. Mm. It was tingling and I could tell where my arm was. I could tell where my hand was. It was kind of starting to, you know, like my fist was being rolled up. And it's never gone away. To this day, I can still feel this slight electrical twinge in my legs and feet, but they're shorter than they used to be. And they still feel like they're bent. My arm is very foreshortened. So in a way, it's kind of like maybe in my brain, it's a way of protecting me so that when I'm not thinking about it, or when I'm doing something else, I don't think about the fact that they're missing because it feels like they're there. Is that the whole phantom... Phantom pain is something very different. <laughs> wow. So this really could be all in your mind. Well, if you think about it, all the electrical connections from my brain and my brainstem and my spine are still intact. So mm. there's nothing to tell them that they're not there, I presume. But phantom pain is very different. Phantom pain is where you get a real sharp jabbing or constant extreme pain. It can range from tingling to tickling something that you want to itch, but you can't because you can't reach it. It's not there to intermittent 
pain. It may last for 20 minutes. It may last for three hours. It can be excruciating where it just jerks your whole body. Most people that have an amputation will have some experience with phantom pain. Will it be there for the rest of their life? Mm. I would say that more than half the people that have it will have it all their life. Mm. It may not be as bad. And there are some people who never have it. But in general, most people with amputations have some degree of phantom pain. And do most of them like have a prescription or something? I know that you were worried about that, but do most people have something like that to deal with that? Or is that like literally something you have to lean into in your life? I can't imagine not screaming your way through this. There are no good drugs for phantom pain. Oh, really? No, there aren't. Um, You can try all the opiates. You can try Neurontin. You can try all of them. You can try marijuana. You can try whatever you want, vaping, whatever. If it does, it's not reliable. I've tried all the drugs. They don't work. And it takes them enough time to get into your system. And you look in the literature, there's no good cure for it. What helps me, it doesn't make it go away, is I take Advil and I put an ice pack on the ends of my leg because it's usually my left outer foot that hurts the most. It will slow it down usually and kind of dull the pain. So it's a matter of just finding ways to minimize it or shorten it. You can put a TENS unit on your skin over your the end of your residual limb. That's one thing that might help. But I think if you speak to anybody that has phantom pain, they all have their own tricks that they try to alleviate it. But in my experience and most other people's, there are no drugs that work for it. You can use them and pretend they're working, but they don't really get rid of the phantom pain. Wow, that's a great advert for Advil. You could do marijuana, you could take <laughs> CBD, you could take Neurotin and all this stuff, but Advil and ice packs. I know, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> but, you know, everybody does their own thing. So I coined the word break upward. Curious what that word might mean to you. Well, as soon as you said that, because I can see you on Zoom right now, and I saw you, your arms <laughs> up, and to me, breaking is something bad. And going upward is usually something good. I would feel very strongly that the worst thing that happened to me in my life was that accident. But it was the worst thing, and everything went up from there. It never got any worse. As Dave said, he was a radiation oncologist, so he dealt with cancer patients all the time. And some of them were going to get better, and some of them weren't. We are at the bottom now. We're only way we have is to go up. So that's the breaking up, not breaking, but breaking and going up. And to me, there's so many parts of my life that would never have happened if I had not had this accident. And I think many people that are disabled will tell you the same thing. The positivity that came out of their accident or their tragedy has been the way they've chosen to relate to people and they've encouraged people to relate to them and living a life that shows them they can be happy. Writing this book was something I was never going to do. For years, people said, you should write a book. You should write a book. As the kids were growing up, you should write a book. And I said, no, I don't need to write a book because I'm busy. I've got a job. (laughs) I've got a family. We've got to do all this stuff. There's no time to write a book. But finally dawned on me that maybe we did have a story to tell and that people would actually be able to look at it and say, again, it comes back to if they can do it, I can do it. And Part of what we haven't talked about is five years ago, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So that became the new challenge in my life. And it was also the challenge that made me realize that my story, our story, my husband's and mine and my children's story 
was more significant than I wanted to let on about. Mm. You know, early on, people said, oh, you should go on Oprah, you should do this. I said, no, I don't need to be out in front of people. I want my life to be lived with one person at a time. You sit next to me at work and you learn from me or we learn from each other. And that's how I relate to people. And I've loved that way of approaching life. When I joined the Parkinson's community, I came home after a meeting the first time and I just sat down and cried. And I just thought, oh my God this is a downhill disease. And I was in a wheelchair by then. And I looked at the people around me and they were more disabled than I was. And I've been disabled for a long time now. And I thought, this is a new challenge. This is going to be a downhill course in the long run. There's no way of making this one go uphill. Mm. So how am I going to stay positive about it? And I was invited to give a talk at a large Parkinson's meeting. And I said, no, I've only been diagnosed a year ago. People can't tell I have Parkinson's. I don't have a tremor, you know, because I'm not walking. You can't tell if I shuffle my feet because I don't have feet, you know, and I could make a joke out of it. We want you to do it is because you've been disabled for so long and been so successful at it. And we want our community to be able to see that this story. And it hit me. All of a sudden, I looked at all these people and I got up and I showed slides of butt walking around with Dave carrying me on his back and camping and doing things. And I started it by saying, you and I have problems using our hand. I only have one hand. Your hand shakes. You have trouble walking. I have trouble walking. We look funny. But here, I want to show you how funny looks and how funny fun can be. Mm. I make them laugh and I get to the end and I have a butt walk race little video that I use that I inadvertently did with my personal trainer one day. We were at my house and I said, Caroline, have you ever butt walk raced me? And she said, no. So we got down and she turned her iPhone on and she put it up on a stand and she counted and we took off across the entryway to our house. And here's my work like this and she's got her legs out there and she just can't get it. I mean, I just take off, you know, like a hundred miles a minute. We just burst out laughing. And when I show that to audiences, they have to laugh. It's just the funniest looking. Here's this little butt walk person who I'm, you know, don't have any legs, no arm, and I'm just kind of juggling around. And I thought, this is my mission now. I've got to convince people that even though you're going to get worse and you can't do things, you can still get out there and do things. And at the end of a couple of my talks, people came up to me and they were the caregiver, usually for somebody with Parkinson's. And they said, you know, my husband's had Parkinson's for 10 years and he used to love to golf and he just doesn't want to go out. After your talk, he just turned around to me and he said, if she can do it, I can do it. Uh, So that's kind of, again, part of the impetus for the book. In a way, is more now for me to show people with things like Parkinson's or other disabilities, more than perhaps just amputees, because that's a small part of our population, that get over it. I mean, let's go out and have a good time. Let's look funny together. You know, let's make Mm -hmm. fun of it. We have to. We're going to have a good time. And my motto on my webpage is get out and go, because that's the only way you're going to have fun. You want to stay home and close all the windows and mope? Well, probably not. Let's get out and go. It's like you can wait for things to get worse. And then, like you said, look back and say, if only I had, you know, played golf, for example, while I could, even if it was kind of shaky in the beginning. And it's like seizing on the range that you can tap into now. Wow. It's so fascinating, though, because what I've picked up on from listening to you is part of the pro of your accident was... You couldn't fantasize about anything coming back. You knew what it was. 
And you knew that it could get better if you managed to do other things, if you didn't limit yourself. But something like Parkinson's and I think, you know, cancer, a lot of different things is you don't know where it's going. You don't know how bad it's going to get. You get a diagnosis, but it doesn't end there. It's like what you saw is like you knew what you were up against. And maybe it was something like Parkinson's for people. They don't know where it's taking them. Well, and that's why I think it's so weird that I've had these two extremes in my life. The first one was when I was young and had lots of energy and it was a very definite abnormality. And now it's much more uncertain, much less under my control, but I've got a lot of tools that I know I can keep control as long as possible. I still have a choice as to whether I want to be upbeat and be engaged with people. Will it stay that way? Probably. Well, it will stay that way, but it'll keep changing. There's three words that I like to use when it comes to any badness, whether it's physical or mental or whatever. First of all, you have to accept mm-hmm. something wrong. And I say wrong, not in a bad and good, evil, bad thing. There's something that doesn't work right. And you have to accept it. Some people, it takes a long time. Mine was easy because it just wasn't there. It was gone. And secondly, you have to adapt. Once you've accepted, you've got to learn how to do things differently and accept that fact. And the last part is I use the word innovate. You have to learn how to do things differently and create new things or go different places. That's the part that becomes the challenge. And it's always the moving target. The acceptance and the adapting they kind of go behind. It becomes constantly innovating. It's like for many years, my husband used to cut my fingernails because I had only one hand and I hated it. I hated it. It was one of those things of being dependent. And maybe 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, I figured out how to file my fingernails and I could put my fingernail file between my shoulder and the back of my wheelchair. And I just had to figure out a way to hold the fingernail file, or I could put it down between my legs and hold it that way, or I could put it on a surface kind of became one of my trademarks. When I would give a talk at the end, I'd say, now, you know, we all have challenges and we can all figure out how to do things. I would have them, whoever was sponsoring the talk, I'd have them put an emery board at their place at the table and say, the last thing I want you to do when you leave, I want you all to pick up that emery board and I want you to try and file your nails with one hand. <laughs> and you could hear the Twitter in the, in the audience. And then they would take it seriously because I said, you can do this. You know, and this is what you're the rest of your life. And they might be you know, administrators for the hospital or something. I said, you're going to be constantly having things that need to be done differently. And if you accept it as a, huh, I wonder if I can do this instead of, oh, I can't do that. Mm. You realized how often you'll be able to make that change or figure out something or create a new way of doing something. So yeah, it looks funny. You know, I, maybe I, you know, stick the fingernail file between my shoulder and my jaw and hold it. So it's kind of constantly, you're always looking for new ways to do things that, you know, even 40 years later you go, Oh, I didn't think about it that way. I can do something now. And when it happens to you, when you figure out that way, do you get like an adrenaline rush? Yeah. And there's another little phrase that I often do when I'm, Something is hard, and I'm thinking, oh, I can't do this. And if I just stop for one second and say out loud, I can do this, just moving my mouth, saying it, taking that breath, hearing it, for the next five minutes, I feel like there's some rush, not a, you know, not a big high, but there's something physiologic that gets kicked into. It's kind of like, okay, I can do this. And it gives me a little bit of extra energy or a little bit of extra 
thought process to solve a problem. Does it always last? No, but it's that little burst. It's like a little pill. I can do this. I so agree in that. I think those bursts save us. You know, I think that they just get us a little bit closer. I think something like I can do this, it's like grounding and it refocuses you. It re-incentivizes you. I, I looked back on this memory that I had from two years ago today and it talks about how, you know, three words, three words can just like wake up your spirit. And I remember through my isolation and everything and trying to get myself back out there, feeling like these very, very short conversations were enough early on somehow to be this burst that got me to feel good enough through the day that I could get to the next day. And rather than trying to find the person that I could say everything to, it was finding the next person that I could just say something to. And that was healing enough. That is what got me here, having hours worth of conversations. I think for too long, I was nostalgic for the hour conversation that I had with someone and I couldn't get there fast enough. And it taught me so much in the long run that like talk to the Uber driver, that person that I might never see again, it will drive me into the next day. You're hitting on another good example. When I would go to work every day, I'd walk in with my cane and I'd go slow and I would say hi to the janitor. I would say hi to the person that was parking car. I mean, you just connect with everybody one-on-one at a time. And that's kind of how I spent my whole life was working and seeing you or the person next to me and not needing to be up on a big pulpit or in front of a screen or something like that, but each one-on-one. I know that I've connected with you and I feel that response. If you don't respond to me, I know, well, maybe I didn't say the right thing or maybe you're having a bad day. Maybe I'll come back and say something one more time to you. So I just think dealing with people one-on-one is the way to conquer the world, to be honest. This is all I've wanted in my life, is to be able to talk to someone like you and learn from someone like you. If one person can look at part of the story and say, oh, I know how to make that be part of my life, that's the goal of this. It can be done. It took 40 years to be able to write it because I needed to have my children be grown up to make sure that it had really been successful, you know? Did my kids grow up? Did they hate having this be around? No, it turned out to be fine. If you read the prologue and then you read the epilogue, you'll see each of my children's voice in there. And it turned out fine. It turned out the way it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) Tell my audience where they can find you. I have a webpage, which is lindakolson.com. That's all one word, L-I-N-D-A-K-O-L-S-O-N. And my book, Gone, A Memoir of Love, Body, and Taking Back My Life. If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at BreakUpward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D, dot com. 
And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.